Chapter Eighteen of the Leavenworth Case by Anna Catherine Green. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eighteen On the Stairs. You cannot say I did it. Macbeth. Excited, tremulous, filled with wonder at this unlooked-for event, I paused for a moment to collect my scattered senses, when the sound of a low, monotonous voice breaking upon my ear from the direction of the library, I approached and found Mr. Harwell reading aloud from his late employer's manuscript. It would be difficult for me to describe the effect which this simple discovery made upon me at this time. There, in that room of late death, withdrawn from the turmoil of the world, a hermit in his skeleton-lined cell, this man employed himself in reading and re-reading, with passive interest, the words of the dead, while above and below human beings agonised in doubt and shame. Listening, I heard these words. By these means their native rulers will not only lose their jealous terror of our institutions, but acquire an actual curiosity in regard to them. Opening the door I went in. Ah, you are late, sir, was the greeting with which he rose and brought forward a chair. My reply was probably inaudible, for he added, as he passed to his own seat, I am afraid you are not well. I roused myself. I am not ill, and pulling the papers towards me, I began looking them over but the words danced before my eyes, and I was obliged to give up all attempt at work for that night. "'I fear I am unable to assist you this evening, Mr. Harwell. The fact is, I find it difficult to give proper attention to this business, while the man who, by a dastardly assassination, has made it necessary, goes unpunished.' The secretary, in his turn, pushed the papers aside, as if moved by a sudden distaste of them, but gave me no answer. You told me, when you first came to me with news of this fearful tragedy, that it was a mystery, but it is one which must be solved, Mr. Harwell. It is wearing out the lives of too many whom we love and respect. The secretary gave me a look. Miss Eleanor, he murmured. And Miss Mary, I went on. Myself, you, and many others. You have manifested much interest in the matter from the beginning he said, methodically dipping his pen into the ink. I stared at him in amazement. "'And you,' said I, "'do you take no interest in that which involves not only the safety but the happiness and honour of the family in which you have dwelt so long?' He looked at me with increased coldness. "'I have no wish to discuss this subject. I believe I have before prayed you spare me its introduction.' And he arose. "'But I cannot consider your wishes in this regard,' I persisted. "'If you know any facts connected with this affair, which have not yet been made public, it is manifestly your duty to state them. The position which Miss Eleanor occupies at this time is one which should arouse the sense of justice in every true breast, and if you—if I knew anything which would serve to release her from her unhappy position, Mr. Raymond, I should have spoken long ago.' I bit my lip, weary of these continual bafflings, and rose also. "'If you have nothing more to say,' he went on, "'and feel utterly disinclined to work, 
"'Why, I should be glad to excuse myself, as I have an engagement out.' "'Oh, do not let me keep you,' I said bitterly. "'I can take care of myself.' He turned upon me with a short stare, as if this display of feeling was well-nigh incomprehensible to him, and then, with a quiet, almost compassionate bow, left the room. I heard him go upstairs, felt the jar when his room-door closed, and sat down to enjoy my solitude. But solitude in that room was unbearable. By the time Mr. Harwell again descended, I felt I could remain no longer, and, stepping into the hall, told him that, if he had no objection, I would accompany him for a short stroll. He bowed a stiff assent, and hastened before me down the stairs. By the time I had closed the library door he was halfway to the foot, and I was just remarking to myself upon the unpliability of his figure, and the awkwardness of his carriage, as seen from my present standpoint, when suddenly I saw him stop, clutch the banister at his side, and hang there with a startled, deathly expression upon his half-turned countenance, which fixed me for an instant where I was in breathless astonishment, and then caused me to rush down to his side, catch him by the arm, and cry, "'What is it? What's the matter?' But thrusting out his hand, he pushed me upwards. "'Go back!' he whispered, in a voice shaking with intensest emotion. "'Go back!' And catching me by the arm, he literally pulled me up the stairs. Arrived at the top, he loosened his grasp, and leaning, quivering from head to foot, over the banisters, glared below. "'Who is that?' he cried. "'Who is that man? What is his name?' Startled in my turn, I bent beside him, and saw Henry Clavering come out of the reception-room and cross the hall. "'That is Mr. Clavering,' I whispered, with all the self-possession I could muster. "'Do you know him?' Mr. Harwell fell back against the opposite wall. "'Clavering! Clavering!' he murmured, with quaking lips then suddenly bounding forward, clutched the railing before him, and, fixing me with his eyes from which all this stoic calmness had gone down for ever in flame and frenzy, gurgled in my ear, "'You want to know who the assassin of Mr. Leavenworth is, do you? Look there, then! That is the man, Clavering!' And with a leap he bounded from my side, and, swaying like a drunken man, disappeared from my gaze in the hall above. My first impulse was to follow him. Rushing upstairs, I knocked at the door of his room, but no response came to my summons. I then called his name in the hall, but without avail. He was determined not to show himself. Resolved that he should not thus escape me, I returned to the library, and wrote him a short note, in which I asked for an explanation of his tremendous accusation, saying I would be in my rooms the next evening at six, when I should expect to see him. This done, I descended to rejoin Mary. But the evening was destined to be full of disappointments. She had retired to her room while I was in the library, and I lost the interview from which I expected so much. "'The woman is slippery as an eel,' I inwardly commented, pacing the hall in my chagrin. "'Wrapped in mystery, she expects me to feel for her the respect due to one of frank and open nature.' I was about to leave the house when I saw Thomas descending the stairs with a letter in his hand. "'Miss Leavenworth's compliments, sir, and she is too fatigued to remain below this evening.' I moved aside to read the note he handed me, feeling a little conscience-stricken as I traced the hurried, trembling handwriting through the following words. "'You ask more than I can give. Matters must be received as they are, without explanation from me. 
it is the grief of my life to deny you but i have no choice god forgive us all and keep us from despair m and below as we cannot meet now without embarrassment it is better we should bear our burdens in silence and apart mr harwell will visit you farewell as i was crossing thirty-second street i heard a quick footstep behind me and turning saw thomas at my side excuse me sir said he but i have something a little particular to say to you when you asked me the other night what sort of a person the gentleman was who called on miss eleanor the evening of the murder i didn't answer you as i should the fact is the detectives had been talking to me about that very thing and i felt shy but sir i know you are a friend of the family and i want to tell you now that that same gentleman whoever he was mr robbins he called himself then was at the house again to-night sir and the name he gave me this time to carry to miss leavenworth was clavering yes sir he went on seeing me start and as i told molly he acts queer for a stranger when he came the other night he hesitated a long time before asking for miss eleanor and when i wanted his name took out a card and wrote on it the one i told you of sir with a look on his face a little peculiar for a caller besides well mr raymond the butler went on in a low excited voice edging up very closely to me in the darkness there is something i have never told any living being but molly sir which may be of use to those as wishes to find out who committed this murder a fact or suspicion i inquired a fact sir which i beg your pardon for troubling you with at this time but molly will give me no rest unless i speak of it to you or mr grice her feelings being so worked up on hannah's account whom we all know is innocent though folks do dare say how she must be guilty just because she is not to be found the minute they want her but this fact i urged well the fact is you see i would tell mr grice he resumed unconscious of my anxiety but i have my fears of detectives sir they catch you up so quick at times and seem to think you know so much more than you really do but this fact i again broke in oh yes sir the fact is that that night the one of the murder you know i saw mr clavering robbins or whatever his name is enter the house but neither i nor any one else saw him go out of it nor do i know that he did what do you mean well sir what i mean is this when i came down from miss eleanor and told mr robbins as he called himself at that time that my mistress was ill and unable to see him the word she gave me sir to deliver mr robbins instead of bowing and leaving the house like a gentleman stepped into the reception-room and sat down he may have felt sick he looked pale enough at any rate he asked me for a glass of water not knowing any reason then for suspicionating any one's actions i immediately went down to the kitchen for it leaving him there in the reception-room alone but before i could get it i heard the front door close what's that said molly who was helping me sir i don't know said i unless it's the gentleman has got tired of waiting and gone if he's gone he won't want the water she said so down i set the pitcher and upstairs i come and sure enough he was gone or so i thought then but who knows sir if he was not in that room or the drawing-room which was dark that night all the time i was a shutting up of the house i made no reply to this i was more startled than i cared to reveal you see sir 
I wouldn't speak of such a thing about any person that comes to see the young ladies, but we all know someone who was in the house that night murdered my master, and as it was not Hannah—' "'You say that Miss Eleanor refused to see him?' I interrupted, in the hope that the simple suggestion would be enough to elicitate further details of his interview with Eleanor. "'Yes, sir. When she first looked at the card she showed a little hesitation, but in a moment she grew very flushed in the face and bade me say what I told you. I should never have thought of it again if I had not seen him come blazoning and bold into the house this evening, with a new name on his tongue. Indeed, and I do not like to think any evil of him now, but Molly would have it I should speak to you, sir, and ease my mind. And that is all, sir." When I arrived home that night I entered into my memorandum-book a new list of suspicious circumstances, but this time they were under the caption of C instead of E. End of chapter 18「Chapter nineteen in my office something between an hindrance and a help wordsworth the next day as with nerves unstrung and an exhausted brain i entered my office i was greeted by the announcement a gentleman sir in your private room, been waiting some time, very impatient. Weary, in no mood to hold consultation with clients new or old, I advanced with anything but an eager step towards my room, when, upon opening the door, I saw Mr. Clavering. Too much astounded for the moment to speak, I bowed to him silently, whereupon he approached me with the air and dignity of a highly bred gentleman, and presented his card on which I saw written, in free and handsome characters, his whole name, Henry Ritchie Clavering. After this introduction of himself he apologised for making so unceremonious a call, saying, in excuse, that he was a stranger in town, that his business was one of great urgency, that he had casually heard honourable mention of me as a lawyer and a gentleman, and so had ventured to seek this interview on behalf of a friend, who was so unfortunately situated as to require the opinion and advice of a lawyer upon a question which not only involved an extraordinary state of facts, but was of a nature peculiarly embarrassing to him, owing to his ignorance of American laws, and the legal bearing of these facts upon the same. Having thus secured my attention, and awakened my curiosity, he asked me if I would permit him to relate his story. Recovering in a measure from my astonishment, and subduing the extreme repulsion, almost horror, I felt for the man, I signified my assent, at which he drew from his pocket a memorandum-book, from which he read, in substance, as follows. An Englishman, travelling in this country, meets, at a fashionable watering-place, an American girl, with whom he falls deeply in love, and whom, after a few days, he desires to marry knowing his position to be good, his fortune ample, and his intentions highly honourable, he offers her his hand, and is accepted. But a decided opposition arising in the family to the match, he is compelled to disguise his sentiments, though the engagement remained unbroken. 
while matters were in this uncertain condition he received advices from england demanding his instant return and alarmed at the prospect of a protracted absence from the object of his affections he writes to the lady informing her of the circumstances and proposing a secret marriage she consents with stipulations the first of which is that he should leave her instantly upon the conclusion of the ceremony and the second that he should entrust the public declaration of the marriage to her it was not precisely what he wished but anything which served to make her his own was acceptable at such a crisis he readily enters into the plans proposed meeting the lady at a parsonage some twenty miles from the watering-place at which she was staying he stands up with her before a methodist preacher and the ceremony of marriage is performed there were two witnesses a hired man of the minister called in for the purpose and a lady friend who came with the bride but there was no license and the bride had not completed her twenty-first year now was that marriage legal if the lady wedded in good faith upon that day by my friend chooses to deny that she is his lawful wife can he hold her to a compact entered into in so informal a manner in short mr raymond is my friend the lawful husband of that girl or not while listening to this story i found myself yielding to feelings greatly in contrast to those with which i greeted the relator but a moment before i became so interested in his friend's case as to quite forget for the time being that i had ever seen or heard of henry clavering and after learning that the marriage ceremony took place in the state of new york i replied to him as near as i can remember in the following words in this state and i believe it to be american law marriage is a civil contract requiring neither license priest ceremony nor certificate and in some cases witnesses are not even necessary to give it validity of old the modes of getting a wife were the same as those of acquiring any other species of property and they are not materially changed at the present time it is enough that the man and woman say to each other from this time we are married or you are now my wife or my husband as the case may be the mutual consent is all that is necessary in fact you may contract marriage as you contract to lend a sum of money or to buy the merest trifle then your opinion is that upon your statement your friend is the lawful husband of the lady in question presuming of course that no legal disabilities of either party existed to prevent such a union as to the young lady's age i will merely say that any fourteen-year-old girl can be party to a marriage contract mr clavering bowed his countenance assuming a look of great satisfaction i am very glad to hear this said he my friend's happiness is entirely involved in the establishment of his marriage he appeared so relieved my curiosity was yet further aroused i therefore said i have given you my opinion as to the legality of this marriage but it may be quite another thing to prove it should the same be contested he started cast me an inquiring look and murmured true allow me to ask you a few questions 
Was the lady married under her own name? She was. The gentleman? Yes, sir. Did the lady receive a certificate? She did. Properly signed by the minister and witnesses? He bowed his head in assent. Did she keep this? I cannot say, but I presume she did. The witnesses were? A hired man of the minister. Who can be found? Who cannot be found. Dead or disappeared? The minister is dead. The man has disappeared. The minister dead? Three months since. And the marriage took place when? Last July. The other witnesses, the lady friend, where is she? She can be found, but her action is not to be depended upon. Has the gentleman himself no proofs of this marriage? Mr. Clavering shook his head. He cannot even prove he was in the town where it took place on that particular day. The marriage certificate was, however, filed with the clerk of the town, said I. It was not, sir. How was that? I cannot say. I only know that my friend has made inquiry, and that no such paper is to be found. I leaned back slowly and looked at him. I do not wonder your friend is concerned in regard to his position, if what you hint is true, and the lady seems disposed to deny that any such ceremony ever took place. Still, if he wishes to go to law, the court may decide in his favour, though I doubt it. His sworn word is all he would have to go upon, and if she contradicts his testimony under oath, why, the sympathy of a jury is, as a rule, with the woman. Mr. Clavering rose, looked at me with some earnestness, and finally asked, in a tone which, though somewhat changed, lacked nothing of its former suavity, if I would be kind enough to give him in writing that portion of my opinion which directly bore upon the legality of the marriage that such a paper would go far towards satisfying his friend that his case had been properly presented, as he was aware that no respectable lawyer would put his name to a legal opinion without first having carefully arrived at his conclusions by a thorough examination of the law bearing upon the facts submitted. This request seeming so reasonable, I unhesitatingly complied with it, and handed him the opinion. He took it, and after reading it carefully over, deliberately copied it into his memorandum-book. This done, he turned towards me, a strong, though hitherto subdued emotion showing itself in his countenance. "'Now, sir,' said he, rising upon me to the full height of his majestic figure, "'I have but one more request to make, and that is, that you will receive back this opinion into your own possession.' and in the day you think to lead a beautiful woman to the altar, pause and ask yourself, Am I sure that the hand I clasp with such impassioned fervour is free? Have I any certainty for knowing that it has not already been given away, like that of the lady whom, in this opinion of mine, I have declared to be a wedded wife according to the laws of my country?' "'Mr. Clavering!' But he, with an urbane bow, laid his hand upon the knob of the door. "'I thank you for your courtesy, Mr. Raymond, and I bid you good day. I hope you will have no need of consulting that paper before I see you again.' 
and with another bow he passed out. It was the most vital shock I had yet experienced, and for a moment I stood paralysed. Me? Me? Why should he mix me up with the affair unless— But I would not contemplate that possibility. Eleanor married, and to this man? No, no, anything but that. And yet I found myself continually turning the supposition over in my mind, until, to escape the torment of my own conjectures, I seized my hat and rushed into the street in the hope of finding him again, and extorting from him an explanation of his mysterious conduct. But by the time I reached the sidewalk he was nowhere to be seen. A thousand busy men, with their various cares and purposes, had pushed themselves between us, and I was obliged to return to my office with my doubts unsolved. I think I never experienced a longer day, but it passed, and at five o'clock I had the satisfaction of inquiring for Mr. Clavering at the Hoffman House. Judge of my surprise when I learned that his visit to my office was his last action before taking passage upon the steamer leaving that day for Liverpool, that he was now on the high seas, and all chance of another interview with him was at an end. I could scarcely believe the fact at first, but after a talk with the cabman, who had driven him off to my office and thence to the steamer, I became convinced. My first feeling was one of shame. I had been brought face to face with the accused man, had received an intimation from him that he was not expecting to see me again for some time, and had weakly gone on attending to my own affairs, and allowed him to escape, like the simple tyro that I was. My next, the necessity of notifying Mr. Grice of this man's departure. But it was now six o'clock, the hour set apart for my interview with Mr. Harwell. I could not afford to miss that, so, merely stopping to dispatch a line to Mr. Grice, in which I promised to visit him that evening, I turned my steps towards home. I found Mr. Harwell there before me. End of chapter 19 Chapter 20 of the Leavenworth Case by Anna Catherine Green. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 20 Truman, Truman, Truman. Often do the spirits of great events stride on before the events, and in to day already walks to morrow. Coleridge. Instantly a great dread seized me. What revelations might not this man be going to make? But I subdued the feeling, and, greeting him with what cordiality I could, settled myself to listen to his explanations. But Truman Harwell had no explanations to give, or so it seemed. On the contrary, he had come to apologise for the very violent words he had used the evening before, words which, whatever their effect upon me, he now felt bound to declare had been used without sufficient basis in fact to make their utterance of the least importance. "'But you must have thought you had grounds for so tremendous an accusation, or your act was that of a madman.' His brow wrinkled heavily, and his eyes assumed a very gloomy expression. "'It does not follow,' he returned. Under the pressure of surprise, I have known men utter convictions no better founded than mine without running the risk of being called mad. Surprise? Mr. Clavering's face or form must then have been known to you. The mere fact of seeing a strange gentleman in the hall would have been insufficient to cause you astonishment, Mr. Harwell. 
he uneasily fingered the back of the chair before which he stood, but made no reply. "'Sit down,' I again urged, this time with a touch of command in my voice. "'This is a serious matter, and I intend to deal with it as it deserves. You once said that if you knew anything which might serve to exonerate Eleanor Leavenworth from the suspicion under which she stands, you would be ready to impart it.' "'Pardon me. I said that if I had ever known anything calculated to release her from her unhappy position, I would have spoken,' he coldly corrected. "'Do not quibble. You know, and I know, that you are keeping something back. And I ask you, in her behalf, and in the cause of justice, to tell me what it is.' "'You are mistaken,' was his dogged reply. "'I have reasons, perhaps, for certain conclusions I may have drawn.' but my conscience will not allow me in cold blood to give utterance to suspicions which may not only damage the reputation of an honest man, but place me in the unpleasant position of an accuser, without substantial foundation for my accusations. "'You occupy that position already,' I retorted, with equal coldness. "'Nothing can make me forget that in my presence you have denounced Henry Clavering as the murderer of Mr. Leavenworth.' "'You had better explain yourself, Mr. Harwell.' He gave me a short look, but moved round and took the chair. "'You have me at a disadvantage,' he said, in a lighter tone. "'If you choose to profit by your position, and press me to disclose the little I know, I can only regret the necessity under which I lie and speak.' "'Then you are deterred by conscientious scruples alone?' "'Yes, and by the meagreness of the facts at my command.' I will judge of the facts when I have heard them. He raised his eyes to mine, and I was astonished to observe a strange eagerness in their depths. Evidently his convictions were stronger than his scruples. "'Mr. Raymond,' he began, "'you are a lawyer, and undoubtedly a practical man, but you may know what it is to scent danger before you see it, to feel influences working in the air over and about you, and yet be in ignorance of what it is that affects you so powerfully, till chance reveals that an enemy has been at your side, or a friend passed your window, or the shadow of death crossed your book as you read, or mingled with your breath as you slept. I shook my head, fascinated by the intensity of his gaze into some sort of response. Then you cannot understand me, or what I have suffered these last three weeks and he drew back with an icy reserve that seemed to promise but little to my now thoroughly awakened curiosity. "'I beg your pardon,' I hastened to say, "'but the fact of my never having experienced such sensations does not hinder me from comprehending the emotions of others more affected by the spiritual influences than myself.' He drew himself slowly forward. "'Then you will not ridicule me?' if I say that upon the eve of Mr. Leavenworth's murder I experienced in a dream all that afterwards occurred, saw him murdered, saw—and he clasped his hands before him in an attitude inexpressibly convincing, while his voice sank to a horrified whisper—saw the face of his murderer. I started, looked at him in amazement, a thrill as at a ghostly presence running through me. "'And was that?' I began. "'My reason for denouncing the man I beheld before me in the hall of Miss Leavenworth's house last night, it was.' And, taking out his handkerchief, he wiped his forehead, 
on which the perspiration was standing in large drops. "'You would then intimate that the face you saw in your dream and the face you saw in the hall last night were the same?' He gravely nodded his head. I drew my chair nearer to his. "'Tell me your dream,' said I. "'It was the night before Mr. Leavenworth's murder. I had gone to bed feeling especially contented with myself and the world at large, for though my life is anything but a happy one—and he heaved a short sigh—some pleasant words had been said to me that day, and I was revelling in the happiness they conferred, when suddenly a chill struck my heart, and the darkness which a moment before had appeared to me as the abode of peace thrilled to the sound of a supernatural cry, and I heard my name, Truman, 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 repeated three times in a voice I did not recognize, and starting from my pillow beheld at my bedside a woman. Her face was strange to me, he solemnly proceeded, but I can give you each and every detail of it. As bending above me she stared into my eyes, with a growing terror that seemed to implore help, though her lips were quiet, and only the memory of that cry echoed in my ears. "'Describe the face,' I interposed. "'It was a round, fair lady's face, very lovely in contour, but devoid of colouring, not beautiful, but winning from its childlike look of trust. The hair, banded upon the low, broad forehead, was brown, the eyes, which were very far apart, grey, the mouth, which was its most charming feature, delicate of make and very expressive. There was a dimple in the chin, but none in the cheeks. It was a face to be remembered. "'Go on,' said I. Meeting the gaze of those imploring eyes, I started up. Instantly the face and all vanished, and I became conscious, as we sometimes do in dreams, of a certain movement in the hall below, and the next instant the gliding figure of a man of imposing size entered the library. I remember experiencing a certain thrill at this, a half-terror, half-curiosity, though I seemed to know as if by intuition what he was going to do. Strange to say, I now seemed to change my personality, and to be no longer a third party watching these proceedings, but Mr. Leavenworth himself, sitting at his library table, and feeling his doom crawling upon him without capacity for speech or power of movement to avert it. Though my back was towards the man, I could feel his stealthy form traverse the passage, enter the room beyond, pass to that stand where the pistol was, try the drawer, find it locked, turn the key, procure the pistol, weigh it in an accustomed hand, and advance again. I could feel each footstep he took as though his feet were in truth upon my heart, and I remember staring at the table before me as if I expected every moment to see it run with my own blood. I can see now how the letters I had been writing danced upon the paper before me, appearing to my eyes to take the phantom shapes of persons and things long ago forgotten crowding my last moments with regrets and dead shames, wild longings and unspeakable agonies, through all of which that face, the face of my former dream, mingled, pale, sweet and searching, 
while closer and closer behind me crept that noiseless foot, till I could feel the glaring of the assassin's eyes across the narrow threshold, separating me from death, and hear the click of his teeth as he set his lips for the final act. Ah! And the secretary's livid face showed the touch of awful horror. What words can describe such an experience as that? In one moment, all the agonies of hell in the heart and brain, the next a blank through which I seemed to see afar, and as if suddenly removed from all this, a crouching figure looking at its work with starting eyes and pallid, back-drawn lips, and seeing recognised no face that I had ever known, but one so handsome, so remarkable, so unique in its formation and character, that it would be as easy for me to mistake the countenance of my father as the look and figure of the man revealed to me in my dream. "'And this face,' said I, in a voice I failed to recognise as my own, "'was that of him whom we saw leave Mary Leavenworth's presence last night, and go down the hall to the front door.'" End of chapter 20chapter 21 of the leavenworth case by anna Catherine green this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter 21 a prejudice true i talk of dreams which are the children of an idle brain begot of nothing but vain fantasy romeo and juliet for one moment i sat a prey to superstitious horror then my natural incredulity asserting itself, I looked up and remarked, "'You say that all this took place the night previous to the actual occurrence?' He bowed his head. "'For a warning,' he declared. "'But you did not seem to take it as such?' "'No. I am subject to horrible dreams. I thought but little of it in a superstitious way, till I looked next day upon Mr. Leavenworth's dead body.' I do not wonder you behaved strangely at the inquest. Ah, sir, he returned with a slow, sad smile, no one knows what I suffered in my endeavours not to tell more than I actually knew, irrespective of my dream, of this murder and the manner of its accomplishment. You believed then that your dream foreshadowed the manner of the murder as well as the fact? I do. It is a pity it did not go a little further, then, and tell us how the assassin escaped from, if not how he entered, a house so securely fastened. His face flushed. That would have been convenient, he repeated. Also, if I had been informed where Hannah was, and why a stranger and a gentleman should have stooped to the committal of such a crime. Seeing that he was nettled, I dropped my bantering vein. "'Why do you say a stranger?' I asked. "'Are you so well acquainted with all who visit that house "'as to be able to say who are and who are not strangers to the family?' "'I am well acquainted with the faces of their friends, "'and Henry Clavering is not amongst the number. "'But—' "'Were you ever with Mr. Leavenworth?' I interrupted. "'When he has been away from home, in the country, for instance, "'or upon his travels?' "'No.' "'But the negative came with some constraint.' "'Yet I suppose he was in the habit of absenting himself from home?' "'Certainly.' "'Can you tell me where he was last July, and he and the ladies?' 
"'Yes, sir, they went to R, the famous watering-place. "'You know.' "'Ah!' he cried, seeing a change in my face. "'Do you think he could have met them there?' I looked at him for a moment, then, rising in my turn, stood level with him, and exclaimed, "'You are keeping something back, Mr. Harwell. You have more knowledge of this man than you have hitherto given me to understand. What is it?' He seemed astonished at my penetration, but replied, "'I know no more of the man than I have already informed you, but—and a burning flush crossed his face. "'If you are determined to pursue this matter—and he paused with an inquiring look. "'I am resolved to find out all I can about Henry Clavering,' was my decided answer. "'Then,' said he, "'I can tell you this much. "'Henry Clavering wrote a letter to Mr. Leavenworth a few days before the murder, "'which I have some reason to believe produced a marked effect upon the household.' "'And folding his arms—' The secretary stood quietly, awaiting my next question. "'How do you know?' I asked. "'I opened it by mistake. I was in the habit of reading Mr. Leavenworth's business letters, and this, being from one unaccustomed to write to him, lacked the mark which usually distinguished those of a private nature.' "'And you saw the name of Clavering?' "'I did. Henry Ritchie Clavering.' "'Did you read the letter?' I was trembling now. The secretary did not reply. "'Mr. Harwell,' I reiterated, "'this is no time for false delicacy. Did you read that letter?' "'I did, but hastily, and with an agitated conscience.' "'You can, however, recall its general drift.' "'It was some complaint in regard to the treatment received by him at the hand of one of Mr. Leavenworth's nieces. I remember nothing more.' "'Which niece?' there were no names mentioned. But you inferred— No, sir, that is just what I did not do. I forced myself to forget the whole thing. And yet you say it produced an effect upon the family. I can see now that it did. None of them have ever appeared quite the same as before. Mr. Harwell, I gravely continued, when you are questioned as to the receipt of any letter by Mr. Leavenworth, which might seem in any manner to be connected with this tragedy, you denied having seen any such. How was that? Mr. Raymond, you are a gentleman, have a chivalrous regard for the ladies. Do you think you could have brought yourself, even if in your secret heart you considered some such result possible, which I am not ready to say I did, to mention at such a time as that— the receipt of a letter complaining of the treatment received from one of Mr. Leavenworth's nieces as a suspicious circumstance worthy to be taken into account by a coroner's jury. I shook my head. I could not but acknowledge the impossibility. What reason had I for thinking that letter was one of importance? I knew of no Henry Ritchie Clavering. And yet you seem to think it was. I remember you hesitated before replying. It is true but not as I should hesitate now, if the question were put to me again. Silence followed these words, during which I took two or three turns up and down the room. "'This is all very fanciful,' I remarked, laughing in the vain endeavour to throw off the superstitious horror his words had awakened. He bent his head in assent. 
"'I know it,' said he. "'I am practical myself in broad daylight, and recognise the nimsiness of an accusation based upon a poor, hard-working secretary's dream as plainly as you do. This is the reason I desired to keep from speaking at all. But, Mr. Raymond—' and his long, thin hand fell upon my arm with a nervous intensity which gave me almost the sensation of an electrical shock. If the murderer of Mr. Leavenworth is ever brought to confess his deed, mark my words, he will prove to be the man of my dream. I drew a long breath. For a moment his belief was mine, and a mingled sensation of relief and exquisite pain swept over me as I thought of the possibility of Eleanor being exonerated from crime only to be plunged into fresh humiliation and deeper abysses of suffering. "'He stalks the streets in freedom now,' the secretary went on, as if to himself, "'even dares to enter the house he has so woefully desecrated. But justice is justice, and, sooner or later, something will transpire which will prove to you that a premonition so wonderful as that I received had its significance.' that the voice calling Truman, Truman, was something more than the empty utterances of an excited brain, that it was justice itself calling attention to the guilty. I looked at him in wonder. Did he know that the officers of justice were already upon the track of this same clavering? I judged not from his look, but felt an inclination to make an effort and see. "'You speak with strange conviction,' I said but in all probability you are doomed to be disappointed. So far as we know, Mr. Clavering is a respectable man." He lifted his hat from the table. "'I do not propose to denounce him. I do not even propose to speak his name again. I am not a fool, Mr. Raymond. I have spoken thus plainly to you, only in explanation of last night's most unfortunate betrayal. And while I trust you will regard what I have told you as confidential, I also hope you will give me credit for behaving, on the whole, as well as could be expected under the circumstances." And he held out his hand. "'Certainly,' I replied, as I took it. Then, with a sudden impulse to test the accuracy of this story of his, inquired if he had any means of verifying his statement of having had this dream at the time spoken of, that is, before the murder, and not afterwards. "'No, sir. I know myself that I had it the night previous to that of Mr. Leavenworth's death, but I cannot prove the fact." "'Did not speak of it next morning to any one?' "'Oh, no, sir. I was scarcely in a position to do so.' "'Yet it must have had a great effect upon you, unfitting you for work.' "'Nothing unfits me for work,' was his bitter reply. "'I believe you,' I returned, remembering his diligence for the last few days. "'But you must at least have shown some traces of having passed an uncomfortable night. Have you no recollection of any one speaking to you in regard to your appearance the next morning?' "'Mr. Leavenworth may have done so. No one else would be likely to notice.' There was sadness in the tone, and my own voice softened as I said, "'I shall not be at the house to-night, Mr. Harwell, nor do I know when I shall return there.' Personal considerations keep me from Miss Leavenworth's presence for a time, and I look to you to carry on the work we have undertaken without my assistance, unless you can bring it here. I can do that. I shall expect you then to-morrow evening. Very well, sir. And he was going, when a sudden thought seemed to strike him. Sir, he said, as we do not wish to return to this subject again, 
and as I have a natural curiosity in regard to this man, would you object to telling me what you know of him? You believe him to be a respectable man. Are you acquainted with him, Mr. Raymond?' "'I know his name and where he resides.' "'And where is that?' "'In London. He is an Englishman.' "'Ah!' he murmured, with a strange intonation. "'Why do you say that?' He bit his lip, and looked down, then up, finally fixed his eyes on mine, and returned with marked emphasis. "'I used an exclamation, sir, because I was startled.' "'Startled?' "'Yes, sir. You say he is an Englishman. Mr. Leavenworth had the most bitter antagonism to the English. It was one of his marked peculiarities. He would never be introduced to one if he could help it. It was my turn to look thoughtful. You know, continued the secretary, that Mr. Leavenworth was a man who carried his prejudices to the extreme. He had a hatred for the English race amounting to mania. If he had known the letter I have mentioned was from an Englishman, I doubt if he would have read it. He used to say he would sooner see a daughter of his dead before him than married to an Englishman. I turned hastily aside to hide the effect which this announcement made upon me. "'You think I am exaggerating?' he said. "'Ask Mr. Veeley.' "'No,' I replied. "'I have no reason for thinking so.' "'He had doubtless some cause for hating the English with which we are unacquainted.' pursued the secretary. He spent some time in Liverpool when young, and had, of course, many opportunities for studying their manners and character. And the secretary made another movement, as if to leave. But it was my turn to detain him now. Mr. Harwell, you must excuse me. You have been on familiar terms with Mr. Leavenworth for so long. Do you think that, in the case of one of his nieces, say, desiring to marry a gentleman of that nationality, his prejudice was sufficient to cause him to absolutely forbid the match? I do. I moved back. I had learned what I wished, and saw no further reason for prolonging the interview. End of chapter 21
lived at that time within a radius of twenty miles of said watering-place. I next asked myself how I was to establish these acts. Mr. Clavering's life was as yet too little known to me to offer me any assistance, so leaving it for the present I took up the thread of Eleanor's history, and found that at the time given me she had been in R, a fashionable watering-place in this state. Now, if this was true, and my theory correct, he must have been there also. To prove this fact became consequently my first business. I resolved to go to R on the morrow. But before proceeding in an undertaking of such importance, I considered it expedient to make such inquiries, and collect such facts as the few hours I had left to work in rendered possible. I went first to the house of Mr. Grice. I found him lying upon a hard sofa in the bare sitting-room I have before mentioned, suffering from a severe attack of rheumatism. His hands were done up in bandages, and his feet encased in multiple folds of dingy red shawl, which looked as if it had been through the wars. Greeting me with a short nod that was both a welcome and an apology, he devoted a few words to an explanation of his unwanted position, and then, without further preliminaries, rushed into the subject which was uppermost in both our minds, by inquiring, in a slightly sarcastic way, if I was very much surprised to find my bird flown when I returned to the Hoffman house that afternoon. "'I was astonished to find you allowed him to fly at this time,' I replied. "'From the manner in which you requested me to make his acquaintance, I supposed you considered him an important character in the tragedy which has just been enacted.' "'And what makes you think I don't?' "'Oh, the fact that I let him go off so easily. "'That's no proof. "'I never fiddle with the brakes till the car starts downhill. "'But let that pass for the present. "'Mr. Clavering, then, did not explain himself before going?' "'That is a question which I find it exceedingly difficult to answer. "'Hampered by circumstances, I cannot at present speak with the directness.' which is your due, but what I can say I will. Know, then, that, in my opinion, Mr. Clavering did explain himself in an interview with me this morning. But it was done in so blind a way, it will be necessary for me to make a few investigations before I shall feel sufficiently sure of my ground to take you into my confidence. He has given me a possible clue. Wait, said Mr. Grice, does he know this? Was it done intentionally and with sinister motive, or unconsciously and in plain good faith? In good faith, I should say. Mr. Grice remained silent for a moment. It is very unfortunate you cannot explain yourself a little more definitely, he said at last. I am almost afraid to trust you to make investigations, as you call them, on your own hook. You are not used to the business, and will lose time, to say nothing of running upon false scents, and using up your strength on unprofitable details. You should have thought of that when you admitted me into partnership. And you absolutely insist upon working this mine alone? Mr. Grice, the matter stands just here. Mr. Clavering, for all I know, is a gentleman of untarnished reputation. I am not even aware for what purpose you set me upon his trail. I only know that in thus following it I have come upon certain facts that seem worthy of further investigation. 
"'Well, well, you know best. But the days are slipping by. Something must be done, and soon. The public are becoming clamorous.' I know it, and for that reason I have come to you for such assistance as you can give me at this stage of the proceedings. You are in possession of certain facts relating to this man, which it concerns me to know, or your conduct in reference to him has been purposeless. Now, frankly, will you make me master of those facts? In short, tell me all you know of Mr. Clavering, without requiring an immediate return of confidence on my part." that is asking a great deal of a professional detective i know it and under other circumstances i should hesitate long before preferring such a request but as things are i don't see how i am to proceed in the matter without some such concession on your part at all events wait a moment is not mr clavering the lover of one of the young ladies anxious as i was to preserve the secret of my interest in that gentleman i could not prevent the blush from rising to my face at the suddenness of this question i thought as much he went on being neither a relative nor acknowledged friend i took it for granted he must occupy some such position as that in the family "'I do not see why you should draw such an inference,' said I, anxious to determine how much he knew about him. "'Mr. Clavering is a stranger in town, has not even been in this country long, has indeed had no time to establish himself upon any such footing as you suggest.' "'This is not the only time Mr. Clavering has been in New York. He was here a year ago, to my certain knowledge.' "'You know that?' "'Yes.' how much more do you know can it be possible i am groping blindly about for facts which are already in your possession i pray you listen to my entreaties mr gryce and acquaint me at once with what i want to know you will not regret it i have no selfish motive in this matter if i succeed the glory shall be yours if i fail the shame of the defeat shall be mine that is fair he muttered and how about the reward my reward will be to free an innocent woman from the imputation of crime which hangs over her this assurance seemed to satisfy him his voice and appearance changed for a moment he looked quite confidential well well said he and what is it you want to know i should first like to know how your suspicions came to light on him at all what reason had you for thinking a gentleman of his bearing and position was in any way connected with this affair that is a question you ought not to be obliged to put he returned how so simply because the opportunity of answering it was in your hands before ever it came into mine what do you mean don't you remember the letter mailed in your presence by miss mary leavenworth during your drive from her home to that of her friend in thirty-seventh street on the afternoon of the inquest yes certainly but you never thought to look at its superscription before it was dropped into the box i had neither opportunity nor right to do so was it not written in your presence it was 
and you never regarded the affair as worth your attention however i may have regarded it i did not see how i could prevent miss leavenworth from dropping a letter into a box if she chose to do so that is because you are a gentleman well it has its disadvantages he muttered broodingly but you said i how came you to know anything about this letter ah i see remembering that the carriage in which we were riding at the time had been procured for us by him the man on the box was in your pay and informed as you call it mr gryce winked at his muffled toes mysteriously that is not the point he said enough that i heard that a letter which might reasonably be proved to be of some interest to me had been dropped at such an hour into the box on the corner of a certain street that coinciding in the opinion of my informant i telegraphed to the station connected with that box to take note of the address of a suspicious-looking letter about to pass through their hands on the way to the general post office and following up the telegram in person found that a curious epistle addressed in lead pencil and sealed with a stamp had just arrived the address of which i was allowed to see and which was henry r clavering hoffman house new york i drew a deep breath and so that is how your attention first came to be directed to this man yes strange but go on what next why next i followed up the clue by going to the hoffman house and instituting inquiries i learned that mr clavering was a regular guest of the hotel that he had come there direct from the liverpool steamer about three months since and registering his name as henry r clavering esq london had engaged a first-class room which he had kept ever since that although nothing definite was known concerning him he had been seen with various highly respectable people both of his own nation and ours by all of whom he was treated with respect and lastly that while not liberal he had given many evidences of being a man of means so much done i entered the office and waited for him to come in in the hope of having an opportunity to observe his manner when the clerk handed him that strange-looking letter from mary leavenworth and did you succeed no an awkward gawk of a fellow stepped between us just at the critical moment and shut off my view but i heard enough that evening from the clerk and servants of the agitation he had shown on receiving it to convince me i was upon a trail worth following i accordingly put on my men and for two days mr clavering was subjected to the most rigid watch a man ever walked under but nothing was gained by it his interest in the murder if interest at all was a secret one and though he walked the streets studied the papers and haunted the vicinity of the house in fifth avenue he not only refrained from actually approaching it but made no attempt to communicate with any of the family 
Meanwhile, you crossed my path, and with your determination incited me to renewed effort. Convinced from Mr. Clavering's bearing, and the gossip I had by this time gathered in regard to him, that no one short of a gentleman and a friend could succeed in getting at the clue of his connection with this family, I handed him over to you, and found me a rather unmanageable colleague. Mr. Grice smiled very much, as if a sour plum had been put in his mouth, but made no reply, and a momentary pause ensued. "'Did you think to inquire?" I asked at last. "'If any one knew where Mr. Clavering had spent the evening of the murder?' "'Yes, but with no good result. "'It was agreed that he went out during the evening, "'also that he was in his bed in the morning "'when the servant came in to make his fire. "'But further than that no one seemed posted. "'So that, in fact, you gleaned nothing "'that would in any way connect this man with the murder, "'except his marked and agitated interest in it.' and the fact that a niece of the murdered man had written a letter to him. That is all. Another question. Did you hear in what manner and at what time he procured a newspaper that evening? No. I only learned that he was observed by more than one to hasten out of the dining-room with the post in his hand, and go immediately to his room without touching his dinner. Hmm. That does not look. If Mr. Clavering had had a guilty knowledge of the crime, he would either have ordered dinner before opening the paper, or having ordered it, he would have eaten it. Then you do not believe from what you have learned that Mr. Clavering is the guilty party? Mr. Grice shifted uneasily, glanced at the papers protruding from my coat-pocket, and exclaimed, I am ready to be convinced by you that he is. That sentence recalled me to the business in hand. Without appearing to notice his look, I recurred to my questions. How came you to know that Mr. Clavering was in the city last summer? Did you learn that, too, at the Hoffman House? No. I ascertained that in quite another way. In short, I have had a communication from London in regard to the matter from London. Yes, I've a friend there in my own line of business, who sometimes assists me with a bit of information when requested. But how? You have not had time to write to London and receive an answer since the murder. It is not necessary to write. It is enough for me to telegraph him the name of a person, for him to understand that I want to know everything he can gather in a reasonable length of time about that person. And you sent the name of Mr. Clavering to him? Yes, in cipher. And have received a reply? This morning. I looked towards his desk. It is not there. He said, If you will be kind enough to feel in my breast-pocket, you will find a letter. It was in my hand before he finished his sentence. Excuse my eagerness, I said. This kind of business is new to me, you know. He smiled indulgently at a very old and faded picture hanging on the wall before him. Eagerness is not a fault, only the betrayal of it. But read out what you have there. Let us hear what my friend Brown has to tell us of Mr. Henry Ritchie Clavering, of Portland Place, London. 
I took the paper to the light, and read as follows. Henry Ritchie Clavering, gentleman, aged forty-three, born in Hertfordshire, England. His father was Charles Clavering, for short time in the army. Mother was Helen Ritchie, of Dumfrieshire, Scotland. She is still living. Home with H.R.C. in Portland Place, London. H.R.C. is a bachelor, six feet high, squarely built, weight about twelve stone, dark complexion, regular features, eyes dark brown, nose straight, called a handsome man, walks erect and rapidly. In society is considered a good fellow, rather a favourite, especially with ladies. Is liberal, not extravagant, reported to be worth about five thousand pounds per year, and appearances give colour to this statement. Property consists of a small estate in Hertfordshire, and some funds, amount not known. Since writing this much, a correspondent sends the following in regards to his history. In forty-six, went from uncle's house to Eton. From Eton went to Oxford, graduating in fifty-six. Scholarship good. In 1855 his uncle died, and his father succeeded to the estates. Father died in fifty-seven by a fall from his horse, or a similar accident. Within a very short time H.R.C. took his mother to London to the residence named where they have lived to the present time. Travelled considerably in 1860. Part of the time was with of Munich, also in a party of Vandervoorts from New York. Went as far east as Cairo. Went to America in 1875 alone, but at end of three months returned on account of mother's illness. Nothing is known of his movements while in America. From servants learn that he was always a favourite from a boy. More recently has become somewhat taciturn. Towards last of his stay watched the post carefully, especially foreign ones. Posted scarcely anything but newspapers. Has written to Munich. Have seen from waste-paper basket torn envelope directed to Amy Belden, no address, American correspondents mostly in Boston, two in New York, names not known, but supposed to be bankers. Brought home considerable luggage, and fitted up part of the house as for a lady. This was closed soon afterwards. Left for America two months since. Has been, I understand, travelling in the south. Has telegraphed twice to Portland Place. Is friends hear from him but rarely. Letters received, recently, posted in New York, one by last steamer, posted in F. N. Y. Business here conducted by, in the country of, as charge of the property. Brown. The document fell from my hands. F. New York was a small town near R. Your friend is a trump, I declared. He tells me just what I wanted to know and taking out my book, I made memoranda of the facts which had most forcibly struck me during my perusal of the communication before me. With the aid of what he tells me, I shall ferret out the mystery of Henry Clavering in a week, see if I do not. "'And how soon,' inquired Mr. Grice, "'may I expect to be allowed to take a hand in the game?' "'As soon as I am reasonably assured I am upon the right track.' "'And what will it take to assure you of that?' 
not much a certain point settled and hold on who knows but what i can do that for you and looking towards the desk which stood in the corner mr gryce asked me if i would be kind enough to open the top drawer and bring him the bits of partly burned paper i would find there hastily complying i brought three or four strips of ragged paper and laid them on the table at his side another result of fobbs researches under the coal on the first day of the inquest mr gryce abruptly explained you thought the key was all he found well it wasn't a second turning over of the coal brought these to light and very interesting they are too i immediately bent over the torn and discoloured scraps with great anxiety they were four in number and appeared at first glance to be mere remnants of a sheet of common writing-paper torn lengthwise into strips and twisted up into lighters but upon closer inspection they showed traces of writing upon one side and what was more important still the presence of one or more drops of spattered blood this latter discovery was horrible to me and so overcame me for the moment that i put the scraps down and turning towards mr gryce inquired what do you make of them that is just the question i was going to put to you swallowing my disgust i took them up again they look like the remnants of some old letter said i they have that appearance mr gryce grimly assented a letter which from the drop of blood observable on the written side must have been lying face up on mr leavenworth's table at the time of the murder just so and from the uniformity in width of each of these pieces as well as their tendency to curl up when left alone must first have been torn into even strips and then severally rolled up before being tossed into the grate where they were afterwards found that is all good said mr gryce go on the writing so far as discernible is that of a cultivated gentleman it is not that of mr leavenworth for i have studied his chirography too much lately not to know it at a glance but it may be hold i suddenly exclaimed have you any mucilage handy i think if i could paste these strips down upon a piece of paper so that they would remain flat i should be able to tell you what i think of them much more easily there is mucilage on the desk signified mr gryce procuring it i proceeded to consult the scraps once more for evidence to guide me in their arrangement these were more marked than i expected the longer and best preserved strip with its mr haw at the top showing itself at first blush to be the left-hand margin of the letter while the machine-cut edge of the next in length presented tokens fully as conclusive of its being the right-hand margin of the same selecting these then i pasted them down on the piece of paper just at the distance they would occupy if the sheet from which they were torn was of the ordinary commercial note size immediately it became apparent first that it would take two other strips of the same width to fill up the space left between them and secondly that the writing did not terminate at the foot of the sheet but was carried on to another page taking up the third strip i looked at its edge it was machine cut at the top and showed by the arrangement of its words that it was the margin strip of a second leaf pasting that down by itself 
I scrutinized the fourth, and finding it also machine-cut at the top, but not on the side, endeavoured to fit it to the piece already pasted down, but the words would not match. Moving it along to the position it would hold if it were the third strip, I fastened it down, the whole presenting, when completed, the appearance seen on the opposite page. "'Well!' exclaimed Mr. Grice. "'That's business!' Then, as I held it up before his eyes, "'But don't show it to me. Study it yourself, and tell me what you think of it.' "'Well,' said I, "'this much is certain, that it is a letter directed to Mr. Leavenworth from some house, and dated—let's see, that's an H, isn't it?' and I pointed to the one letter just discernible on the line under the word house. "'I should think so, but don't ask me. It must be an H. The year is 1875, and this is not the termination of either January or February. Dated then March 1st, 1876, and signed—' Mr. Grice rolled his eyes in anticipatory ecstasy towards the ceiling. "'By Henry Clavering!' I announced without hesitation. Mr. Grice's eyes returned to his swathed finger-ends. "'Hm! How do you know that?' "'Wait a moment, and I'll show you,' and taking out of my pocket the card which Mr. Clavering had handed me as an introduction at our late interview, I laid it underneath the last line of writing on the second page. One glance was sufficient. Henry Ritchie Clavering on the card, H-Chi, in the same handwriting on the letter. "'Clavering it is,' said he, "'without a doubt.' But I saw he was not surprised. "'And now,' I continued, "'for its general tenor and meaning.' And, commencing at the beginning, I read aloud the words as they came, with pauses at the breaks, something as follows. Mr. Haw, dear, a niece whom you want to who see the love and trust any other man ca beautiful so car she in face for conversation Every rose has its rose is no exception Ellie as she is car tender as she is pubble of trampling one who trusted heart uh, him to he owes a honour ants if t believe her to cruel face what is bull serve yours h chi it reads like a complaint against one of Mr. Leavenworth's nieces, I said, and started at my own words. What is it? cried Mr. Grice. What is the matter? Why, said I, the fact is, I have heard this very letter spoken of. 
it is a complaint against one of mr leavenworth's nieces and it was written by mr clavering and i told him of mr harwell's communication in regard to the matter ah then mr harwell has been talking as he i thought he had forsworn gossip mr harwell and i have seen each other almost daily for the last two weeks i replied it would be strange if he had nothing to tell me and he says he has read a letter written to mr leavenworth by mr clavering yes but the particular words of which he has now forgotten these few here may assist him in recalling the rest i would rather not admit him to a knowledge of the existence of this piece of evidence i don't believe in letting any one into our confidence whom we can conscientiously keep out i see you don't dryly responded mr gryce not appearing to notice the fling conveyed by these words i took up the letter once more and began pointing out such half-formed words in it as i thought we might venture to complete as the haw you see beautiful ha for tramplin pubble serve this done i next proposed the introduction of such others as seemed necessary to the sense as leavenworth after horatio sir after dear have with a possible you before a niece thorn after us in the phrase rose has its on after trampling whom after two debt after a you after if me ask after believe beautiful after cruel between the columns of words thus furnished i interposed a phrase or two here and there the whole reading upon its completion as follows house march the first eighteen seventy six mr horatio leavenworth dear sir you have a niece whom you one two who seems worthy the love and trust of any other man ca so beautiful so charming is she in face form and conversation but every rose has its thorn and this rose is no exception lovely as she is charming as she is tender as she is she is capable of trampling on one who trusted her heart a uh, him to whom she owes a debt of honour a uh, nace if you don't believe me ask her to her cruel beautiful face what is her humble servant yours henry ritchie clavering i think that will do said mr gryce its general tenor is evident and that is all we want at this time the whole tone of it is anything but complimentary to the lady it mentions i remarked he must have had or imagined he had some desperate grievance to provoke him to the use of such plain language in regard to one he can still characterize as tender charming and beautiful grievances are apt to lie back of mysterious crimes i think i know what this one was i said but seeing him look up must decline to communicate my suspicion to you for the present my theory stands unshaken and in some degree confirmed and that is all i can say then this letter does not supply the link you wanted no it is a valuable bit of evidence but it is not the link i am in search of just now 
yet it must be an important clue or eleanor leavenworth would not have been to such pains first to take it in the way she did from her uncle's table and secondly wait what makes you think this is the paper she took or was believed to have taken from mr leavenworth's table on that fatal morning why the fact that it was found together with the key which we know she dropped into the grate and that there are drops of blood on it i shook my head why do you shake your head asked mr gryce because i am not satisfied with your reason for believing this to be the paper taken by her from mr leavenworth's table and why well first because fobbs does not speak of seeing any paper in her hand when she bent over the fire leaving us to conclude that these pieces were in the scuttle of coal she threw upon it which surely you must acknowledge to be a strange place for her to have put a paper she took such pains to gain possession of and secondly for the reason that these scraps were twisted as if they had been used for curl papers or something of that kind a fact hard to explain by your hypothesis the detective's eye stole in the direction of my necktie which was as near as he ever came to a face you are a bright one said he a very bright one i quite admire you mr raymond a little surprised and not altogether pleased with this unexpected compliment i regarded him doubtfully for a moment and then asked what is your opinion upon the matter oh you know i have no opinion i gave up everything of that kind when i put the affair into your hands still that the letter of which these scraps are the remnant was on mr leavenworth's table at the time of the murder is believed that upon the body being removed a paper was taken from the table by miss eleanor leavenworth is also believed that when she found her action had been noticed and attention called to this paper and the key she resorted to subterfuge in order to escape the vigilance of the watch that had been set over her and partially succeeding in her endeavour flung the key into the fire from which these same scraps were afterwards recovered is also known the conclusion i leave to your judgment very well then said i rising we will let conclusions go for the present my mind must be satisfied in regard to the truth or falsity of a certain theory of mine for my judgment to be worth much on this or any other matter connected with the affair and only waiting to get the address of his subordinate p in case i should need assistance in my investigations i left mr gryce and proceeded immediately to the house of mr veeley End of chapter 22「Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. » And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments. 
not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.